Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Andy McNabb is one of the world's best-selling writers, drawing on his experience as a member of 22 SAS Regiment. Andy is the author of the best-selling Nick Stone and Tom Buckingham thrillers, along with the biggest-selling British work of military history, Bravo 2-0. Today, I'm talking to Andy McNabb about his new book, The Hunt, the true story of the secret mission to catch a Taliban warlord. Andy McNabb, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you. The Hunt is a true story told as fiction. Why did you choose fiction as the vehicle for this story? Two reasons for that. In real time, what, what happens is that there's a, a system that these type of books go through the UK's Ministry of Defence for a thing called the Disclosure Committee. So basically, there are things that wouldn't be able to be put in for operational security and national security. So what you can do is actually present the facts uh, that this Disclosure Committee are, are, are OK with uh, within... Um, if you like, a fiction sort of uh, narrative. And that does two things. What it can do is give it a more sense of time and place rather than it being a very dry narrative, like, you know, at, at 1,400 hours on the 5th of the 6th, this happened, that happened, this happened. Because obviously what you're trying to do is create images, you know, and the images come from, you know, what they've seen on TV and what they've, they've just gathered on life and they're all gather their own sort of images. And you basically what you're trying to do is keep it going down on the same route. So it's far better to present it as a, um, uh, uh, a nonfiction sort of um, uh, narrative because it's easier to create those images so people then get a more enjoyable read. So um, the you know the, the, it's written as a as a, um, a fiction uh, a narrative. It goes to the Ministry of Defence. They have a look at it and say, well, you've got problems with that detail, that detail, you know, these events, that sort of thing, um, and therefore uh, that's all done. And then in my head, what I do is get the uh, the, the if you like the detail, and then trying to present it in a more sort of um, in a more enjoyable sort of way of reading it, basically, um, because no matter all you know everything, if you're presenting it, whether it's TV, film, or in a book, you've got to try and tell it as a story, because that's how we take in information as stories. Now we'll talk about Jay, the main character, in a minute, but first I want to talk about some of the facts. This is an account of the hunt and assassination of one of the Taliban's senior military leaders named Dadullah or Mullah Dadullah, uh, known by other names too. Why was he such an important target? Well, uh, for two reasons. Basically, he was number one in, in Afghanistan, directing um, operations against uh, the uh, NATO forces there. So that would be a natural target, what we call a high-value target to, to take. And interestingly, the, the, the mission wasn't to kill him. The mission was to uh, lift him, arrest him, and take him. Um, uh, and the, the mission uh, was uh, originated from the American CIA because the, we always have these the, the images. You go in and kill him, 
Um, but that's actually, it's counterproductive. It's more productive to lift and see what information you can get. Real-time, what's called tactical uh, information. Um, so that's always the, the deal. Nine out of 10 times, that all goes wrong because, you know, they don't want to be taken. So there's always a, a conflict. Um, so the, if you like, tactical information, um, taking the uh, leadership out of the, the Taliban in Afghanistan. That was the first reason. The second reason was that the, the plan was then to extend the operations into the NATO countries, whether it be the UK, uh, mainland US, you know, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, all the NATO forces that were there. So through their networks that were coming out of, of Pakistan was then to actually try and get people within those countries to start conducting operations. Nine out of 10 times, there'll be a bombing somewhere in a shopping mall. So to actually lift them, to take them out of the equation, will then uh, eradicate that problem and also try and get the information not only tactical information in Afghanistan, but who are these people in the NATO countries? The action takes place between 2001, which um, is where Jay's initial posting begins, and then through to 2007, where he's promoted to Squadron Sergeant Major. What was significant about this time frame in the context of the war in Afghanistan? First of all, as a story and the main character being Jay, and again, trying to create understanding, empathy, um, all those things about these, these, these characters. Because sometimes these characters um, might not be doing things that you agree with. And that's fine. That's actually quite good. But actually, the, the important thing is you might not agree with it, um, but you've got to understand it. So what you've got to do is give a bit of a depth to the, the characters. The, the other thing is, is what was happening at that time um, in the, the, the early years, 2001, uh, Afghanistan was almost like a backwater sort of conflict because everything was focusing on um, Iraq. And even at that, at that time, you know, the um, special air service were exclusively involved in Iraq. Special boat service was given the the operations in Afghanistan as this sort of almost backdrop, you know, basically, you know, for all NATO troops, it was all a sideshow. Gradually, um, Afghanistan was deemed to be much more important. And then we started having the surges and the more troop involvements. And, and because of that, um, uh, the, 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 the conflict became more kinetic. Basically, it's just a military term of like, you know, more shooting and blowing up basically. So there was more troops involved. Um, Taliban were getting very, very organized. Um, and again, the routes coming in and out of Pakistan had to be stopped. So it was an escalation of the conflict. As Iraq started to, to run down, the escalation within uh, Afghanistan started to ramp up. So it was trying to show through Jay and his experiences of being there in the early days, um, uh, moving up to you know the times of the surges and the, and the high intensity operation. That's a very personal account of this mission. And it's told through the main character and through Jay's own experience. Of course, it makes you wonder who the inspiration for that character is. Uh, is there an individual behind that character? There's two people that were on, on that operation who were senior NCOs. You know, um, they were uh, warrant officers uh, within the Special Boat Service who were uh, part of the operation, um, you know, from the early days. And they were in the conflict during uh, 2001. One of the things of turning something in a book, whether it's, you know, you're trying to do it in, in a non-fiction sense or in the fiction sense, is the protection of the people that were involved. Uh, number one, at, at a personal sort of level, they don't want to be spoken about. And, and you know, this, number two really is on the security level. You know, they, they shouldn't be um, spoken about. That's why these sort of books go through that system I spoke about at the uh, uh, Ministry of Defence. So basically it's an amalgam of, of, of two of the senior NCOs that were part of it were junior NCOs in the, in the 2001 um, uh, tours. 
in a way, what what one of white could do is use a central character to bring the, the the story along, and at the same time do the job of protecting the people that, that were actually on the job. Let's talk a bit more about practical things and Jay's training and experience in particular, and that included the uh, training at the Royal Marines Commando, and then he passes the Special Forces selection to join the Elite Special Boat Service. How difficult is that training and what sort of toll does it take on an individual, both physically and mentally? And emotionally as well, actually. Within the, the special forces community, you know, whether it, it's, you know, uh, you know, American, European, Australian, New Zealand, the selection process for uh, UKSF of United Kingdom Special Forces is a template for everybody else because it is so hard. In general, on these selection process, which is between six and seven months long. And in fact, for the special boat services, longer because they have to do some specialist diving uh, skills as well. Normally, there's about 220 maximum that go on the selection process. And normally, by the end of it, there'll be between eight and 12 that actually pass. There's the physical side of it, which um, a lot of the selection, certainly the first month of the selection, is purely physical um, stamina. And that's trying to get rid of everybody who thinks they're going to be James Bond or they're watching too many TV shows or, you know, all that, all, all that, that sort of stuff. Then it's all about not only the physical stuff, it's the aptitude. You can be the best soldier, you know, best Marine, you can be the best on the planet. But if you haven't got the aptitude to take in information really, really quickly and learn what they're trying to, to, to teach you, you're not going to go anywhere. And if you can't work on your own initiative, you know, fantastic soldiers everywhere on the planet, but a lot of those soldiers have to be told what to do and they'll do it until they drop. You know, within special forces, there's no time for that because you're working in small groups with no hierarchy telling you uh, uh, what to do. And then once you're in, there is, if you like, the emotional strain of marriages. You know, in fact, I know of two marriages being successful and then I only found out about three months ago, one of them actually just <laughs> collapsed as well. So there's one marriage out of that cohort that is still successful because you're away a lot. The counter argument to that is like, lads, you know, you volunteered for this. If you don't like it, get out. You know, so it's very sort of clear cut from the military side of life. So um, there's, there's, there's three sort of problems. And even in selection, you know, you're not home for sort of six to seven months just to start off with. The truth was that they all welcomed the opportunity to test themselves and relished the fact that they were on the hunt. Now, ordinary people, those outside the military and those outside the special forces even, might not be able to relate to that attitude you've expressed there. What's the psychology behind that thinking, the experience of the hunt and being the hunter? You're absolutely right. It's a, it's a great question, really. I think because we all live in, in liberal democracies, there's certain people who find it uncomfortable that there are people that like to fight, which is a you know one of the reasons as a species why we're so successful because that's always been been with us. So if you are a professional soldier, clearly it's not as if you like to fight. You're out and you oh this is good. I'm fine because it, it's it's not about that because you do it as a as a profession. But what there is there is the fact that that you're on the ground. There is a task to do. There is a thing called the pursuit of excellence, which is part of all the ethos. In, in fact, in all, all special forces groups, it's the pursuit of excellence. And that, that, that for two reasons. Number one, so you complete 
the mission, which is once you're on it, is the most important thing. Nothing else uh, is 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 in people's minds. Um, uh, so that you know you have to be what's called mission oriented to get the the job done. And the fact that they're hunting for somebody, they're looking for somebody. There is that test. We like to see it when it's in a more fluffy sort of way. I don't know if, you, you know, you, you're looking at Gladiator. You know, that is the pursuit of excellence. You know, he, he's, he's low down and he, he sort of rises again. And we love all that sort of stuff. But the reality is there are men and women who are in the military. It's a profession, certainly at, at, at that level. So once you're on the ground and you're operating, everything is about the mission. There is that pursuit of excellence, that test. And, you know, instinctively, well, why we're successful as a species is because we do hunt. We find, some people find it uncomfortable, it's a fact. The Nick Stone missions, they're a series of action thrillers based on your experiences in the SAS. Now, they're entirely fictional action-packed thrillers, but in the hunt, we're exposed to a different kind of thriller, documentary fiction. Well, that's the genre I'm thinking of. And while the Nick Stone books are absolutely thrillers, why does the hunt send a shiver down my spine that a Nick Stone thriller can't? Do you know what? I think that it's the realisation that it's actually real, that it happened, it took place. And because of the dialogue, one of the great things you you, you can do with um, uh, true events is when you, you can then uh, have dialogue. And what I was trying to do was make sure that the dialogue was authentic as possible, whether it's, you know, all the people making fun of each other or the way that they spoke and that, to give you uh, more understanding and empathy with, with the characters. So all of a sudden you've got that image of what these characters are and they, you know, they're nice guys and they're this, that and they're other and they're drinking coffee at the, you know, the, the bases and they're doing all that sort of stuff, making fun out of each other. Then all of a sudden they got all the party gear on and they're going out and people are getting killed. And there's that realisation that actually, you know, it could be the next door neighbour doing this sort of thing. You know, there are people that do this. It's almost like a like a trick. What you're trying to do is bring you in as this, you know, oh, that's great, you know, because it conforms with special forces and all that. And then you see a bit of the, the realism of it. You know, not only they're going out and they're killing people, but actually they're getting killed themselves. My final question to you is about your other work. Not only are you an author, but you're also involved in something called the Reading Agency. Tell me about that organisation and the work that you do there. When I joined the, the, the British Army, um, I was 16, I, did, I joined um, uh, what's called the Junior Leaders Battalion because uh, the Brits take people into the army at 16 and above. I really thought I was going to become a helicopter pilot because that was the recruiting sort of film I saw. And... Uh, uh, clearly that weren't going to happen. And I, I went into the infantry because it was only then I discovered I had the reading age of a nine-year-old. And all of us within the Infantry Junior Leaders Battalion, the reason we were there is that we had reading ages between nine and 11-year-old. So the whole emphasis, as well as all the military training um, uh, for a year, was going back to school as well. And that's where, for me, education started. What happened was that as soon as I started it, uh, it, well, it was, it was infectious, like a drug, you know, it was all, all you know, snowball going down the hill, getting bigger and bigger and bigger sort of thing. Um, and sort of I realised the more you read, the more knowledge you get, the more knowledge you get, the more power you got to do the things that you want to do, as opposed to people with more power telling you what to do. And it stuck with me sort of continuously, um, uh, even during the time in the, in the uh, special air service. 
Uh, in fact, they sent me to university for four months. So it was called the Army in the Contemporary World, how politics and the military sort of mixed together. And I couldn't wait to go. I thought it was fantastic. Um, so when I got out and, and then this, this whole thing bomb-burst into publishing, what I decided to do was get involved with the reading agency and then going back into schools and saying, look, this is my story. I didn't like school. I didn't want to go to school, all that sort of stuff. I left school, no qualifications whatsoever, clearly because I couldn't read and write. The way through that is by reading. Um, it doesn't matter what you read, as long as you get reading, because once you're in, you'll get hooked. So it was really sort of trying to go into schools and particularly the, the schools that, that were deemed by our, our, our sort of government as, as failing schools, you know, schools that needed, needed help. And, and just talking to these kids and going, look, you know, I'm not telling you that you're going to get a job, make money. But what you're going to do is be able to get out there and compete. And it was simple as that, because certainly in the UK, Everybody thinks they're going to be a rapper or a footballer. And we're saying, yeah, but like, a con- I know footballers. You know, the contracts are like 190, 200 pages thick. They're like that. I'm saying, so you're going to let a manager dictate all that money you're going to make if you become a footballer. No, you need to read it and you need to understand it. Um, uh, and it really sort of got him, uh, uh, started within schools. And then the, uh, the unions um, asked me to go into uh, the workplace because we have a changing demographic where even in biscuit factories, you know, technology is, is getting so more advanced. They need a more educated workforce, yet they want to retain the people that they've got. So, you know, literally in a lot of our factories, there's schools now where people go afterwards and try and get some some new skills. One of the reasons why I landed up going in the army, I was in juvenile detention as a, as a, as a 16-year-old. Uh, and then started going in prisons, doing the same thing. So there was a bit of sort of credibility of being in what was called the Borstal system, which was quite a sort of quite a rough system uh, for juveniles uh, at that time, which which thankfully got disbanded. So many people saying, like, you know, it's actually brutalising kids as opposed to rehabilitating them. You know, knowledge equals power. You know, it's not as if you're going to get out and get a job because you've got to compete with everyone else. But if you get a job... Then you start paying tax, you support your families, and we don't have to pay for you to be in prison. It was similar as that. Andy, you've got so many great stories to tell. It's been a great pleasure talking to you, and thank you for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you very much for the invite. Thank you. I've been talking to Andy McNabb about his book, The Hunt, The True Story of the Secret Mission to Catch a Taliban Warlord. It's published by Wilbeck, and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. Subscribe to Good Reading Print and Online Magazine at goodreadingmagazine.com.au.